financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman. Today is Tuesday, March 14th, 2023. And I'm on, as always, with my partner, Dom Tavella. How are you? Doing great, Mike. How are you? I'm all right. So what's new? <laughs> what country are you in, Mike? <laughs> oh my God. It's been a it's been a wild weekend. It's never a good sign, Dominic, when I'm watching CNBC at 9 p.m. on a Sunday night and checking my phone for uh for for uh, news alerts. Look, uh we we obviously, you know, we we've been expecting some volatility. We've talked about it for quite a few weeks, Mike, maybe even months. We we thought these markets might come back and retest the low, but this uh, uh, bank failure out of California really threw a monkey wrench into the markets. 16th largest bank in the country, second largest default of a bank in the history of the country. So this was a significant event. And, and let's just say the markets acted as you would expect, right? A lot of volatility. But you know what, Tom, let's not forget that the Silicon Valley story was bubbling around Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday night. And I know Signature had a rough trading day on Friday, but I don't know if anyone saw Signature being closed down Sunday. I mean, to me, that was more of a shock than than than, than the SVB story. Well, we, we, we sent out a video. Uh, I did an interview on Fox News on Saturday afternoon, Mike, and we sent out a video. By then, we knew that the bank was shut down. By then, the FDIC had already stepped in uh, and they were going to take over. What scared a lot of people was that we, the shareholders, the owners of the bank, you, you lost your money. You were done. What was unknown at that time was the depositors. There was a significant number of, of corporations and individuals that had deposits there. And normally you're only guaranteed up to 250,000, right? So how a company is going to make payroll this week if their money was frozen and maybe uh, completely lost. And as you pointed out, the Fed announced Sunday night that they would be stepping in. I think it took a lot of pressure off the markets. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and Janet Yellen, I think, was on one of the Sunday morning shows stating, you know, we're not going to bail out these banks. And then technically they didn't. Right. They, the, the, the shareholders got wiped out. The bondholders got hurt. The executives are gone. I, mean, I don't want this to be a political statement, but I do think that the government did the right thing. The depositors didn't do anything wrong. They would have, as you said, it would have created havoc. And I think the stock market which, you know, it started to stabilize a little bit yesterday and, and today, especially stock market would have been annihilated if 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 this thing would have leaked into Monday. And we still well, uh, Mike and, and we started on Friday and even a little bit of it 
uh, yesterday, the index that represents regional banks, I think at one point was down 28%, uh, because the question is if this bank, and, and we do want to spend a minute because there were warnings out there, right? Mm -hmm. But if this bank uh, was in trouble and eventually had to be taken over by the FDIC, how many other banks did we, do we not know if there was a ticking time bomb inside? And that puts everything, the whole system in question, right? So I think that the government did the right thing by stepping in. There'll be political consequences, economic consequences, and we have a great guest tonight to, to help us with that. But for now, I think it was the right step. Protect the depositors, the shareholders. I'm sorry, Mike. Uh, you know what? You, you have a board. You have a, a management team there. You have oversight. Um, somebody should have known what was going on. Right. I completely agree. And, and that was my point in bringing up Signature, right? Because the the, the, this, the Silicon Valley story was bubbling around for a while. But if we would have opened up yesterday with two banks failing, with no backstop, then we literally could have had a run on, on other regional banks. You know, customers calling up their accountant, their, their financial advisor. And what advice are we going to give? If you feel better not having to worry about it, because I don't know for sure which banks are going to go out and which ones no one knows, right? Uh, again, there's supposed to be oversight. There's supposed to be government agencies that look at this stuff. This was, I, I think Silicon Valley was a little bit of a unique situation. At least I hope it was a little bit of a unique situation in that they had a significant number of uh, value of their assets sitting in fixed maturity bonds that 60%, Mike, was in fixed maturity long bonds. So when the run started, when people wanted to get their money out, they had to sell these bonds at a deep discount, take a huge loss. The loss amounted to over $2 billion. Mike, you and I know how what it's like trying to sell blocks of stock or bonds uh, on a Friday afternoon. Can you imagine this bank trying to sell $28 billion of bonds in one afternoon. They, they, they got hammered, right? So a lot of things went wrong. It was almost a perfect storm. I'm not sure if this exists with a lot of other banks, but it is an issue and we all need to be aware of it. Look, and the other part of it, and I'm glad you mentioned we have uh, Jack Manley on tonight from JP Morgan Asset Management. And the other thing that I'm curious about, Dom, is the unintended consequence of, of a one-year treasury paying 5% is there has been an enormous amount of money, disintermediation, leaving bank deposits and going into treasuries. And, and you know, and, I, and this is probably an unintended consequence of the Fed with the yield curve being inverted. But I also would think that one of the reasons the banks had to sell some of these older bonds is because it wasn't even a run on the bank. Just every day, it was a drip, drip, drip of money leaving to buy short-term treasuries. Well, again, I think Silicon was a little bit of a unique situation because their customer base, they had a significant uh, amount of their customers that were in that technology yeah. space, crypto space, uh, IPO space, venture capital. And we went through a, a period, Mike, of a year, year and a half where these firms normally would be collecting big dollars and making deposits. They actually were burning through their capital, trying to stay afloat and get the, these businesses off the ground. So this particular bank saw a large amount of out, outflows. 
there was a problem with these bonds in their portfolio. I don't know. I, I don't want to throw stones because I don't know the details, but clearly if Rick Reader from Blackstone or Jeff Goodluck was there, you know, some of the real premier bond money managers, may, maybe we would have seen a different story of how that portfolio was managed. And then when the whispers came out that the bank might be in trouble, they had $48 billion of assets come out over a 48-hour period, Mike. It was unsustainable. The whole thing was just a snowball going downhill. Right. And again, this is exactly why I think the government did the right thing on Sunday in preventing similar runs on the bank, whether the bank deserved it or not. Right. And, and let's not let them completely off the hook here, Mike. It was it's their actions. It's the Fed's raising interest rates as aggressively as they have been that actually made those bonds uh, worth right. less than they were a year and two years ago. Right? right. So it's this seesaw effect of higher interest rates. It's the Fed that raised interest rates that put the bank in that position. That, again, that unintended consequence. I, I could yeah. not agree with you more. So tonight's guest, as I said, is Jack Manley from J.P. Morgan Asset Management. He's vice president there. He's a global market strategist. And we've asked him to come on tonight to 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 shed some common sense light and to explain in, in, in language we could all understand, um, break down exactly what happened and, and, and other topics, Tom. Looking forward to this, Mike. So we'll be right back with Jack Manley right after this break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-G-A-X, Le Tax. Rates on cash are already so low, why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. The Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities, the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
You are listening to the Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with my partner, Dominic Tavella, and our guest this evening, Jack Manley, Vice President of Glo- and Global Market Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, our great friends and, and great supporters of our podcast. Good evening, Jack. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you doing? We're doing well. Welcome, Jack. Thanks, Dom. It's good to be here. So, Jack, as I said on the open, I know you heard our conversation, you know, your timing tonight's perfect. Um, you know, we spent most of the year talking about interest rates and inflation, and it was trying to get a little, it was trying to get a little redundant, kind of rehashing some of the same events. And you know, and then and then last week happened, and this is not two thousand eight. I don't think it's a full blown banking crisis. I don't think there's a contagion. I think the government did a good job in hopefully putting a, a lid on that. But um, your your opinion is more important than ours. What's your what's your view on on what's going on? I, I think what we've seen uh, as a result of Silicon Valley Bank and to some extent a couple of these other names that have been in the news recently uh, is to, to the points that you guys were making earlier, kind of the unattended uh, or unintended side effects or consequences of what has shaped up to be probably the most aggressive rate hiking cycle we've seen in 30 or, or 40 years. You know, we spend a lot of time on the road talking about the impact of higher interest rates and what that means for consumers, what that means for business investment, what that means for mortgages. We don't really spend a whole lot of time talking about the potential for another banking crisis like what we saw back in 2008, because you look at the metrics that you would have looked at back then, you say, hey, lending standards are pretty good. Credit quality is up. The consumer is doing okay. The financial system seems to be all right. And then all of a sudden, you know, that saying is you never get hit by the train you're looking at. That's kind of what ended up happening here, right? And in, in, in retrospect, people should have been paying more attention to this. And if you did pay more attention to it, you probably would have seen it coming. But for now, I think it is just a, a pretty sobering reminder that there are some things going on beneath the surface that we may not be able to tell uh, based off of sort of the traditional framework for analysis. But I'd agree with you, Mike. I think the government stepping in over the weekend, setting up some some processes to not just backstop Silicon Valley Bank or, uh, or Signature Bank, but also to set up a framework for support for any potential future bank that comes under pressure, did a whole lot to prevent the potential run on the banking system, uh, and I think has sort of shored up a lot of the sentiment around this. I'll tell you, we're not speaking about it this much, even as even as much as we were yesterday uh, or, or, or over the weekend. The sentiment's already calmed down a bit. But isn't, isn't this literally, when we talk about unintended consequences, when money is zero, uh, zero interest rate, when, when, or 1%, some nominal amount, and whether it's somebody, an individual has a home equity loan or a company that's borrowing on a variable rate, I mean, things look pretty good, right? But, but now that interest rates are starting to get to, and I dare say more in line, more normal rates, isn't this when, when some, some unfortunate things are going to pop up? I, I think it's exactly the, the, the timing of that. And one of the problems that I've had sort of for the last 12, 13 months is that the Fed has been um, very intensely slamming on the brake and keeping their foot on the brake and not really giving this economy any real time to digest the impact 
of, of higher interest rates. You know, when, when I think about the rate environment, um, whether it's applied to the equity market, the bond market, or even to something like, like what happened last week with, with balance sheets, it is not about the absolute level of interest rates, right? This economy can stomach a 5% Fed funds rate. The equity market can stomach a 5% Fed funds rate. I bet you if you gave Silicon Valley Bank enough time, they could have stomached the 5% Fed funds rate. The issue is the direction of travel and the rate of change. The fact that we are going from the cost of money, to your point, Don, being essentially nothing, to the cost of money now being quite tangible, and especially as inflation continues to come off the boil, the real cost of borrowing is getting pretty close to, to moving positive. Things are starting to break. This may not have been where we thought the break was going to happen. We probably would have assumed a slowdown in business investment, a slowdown in consumption, a tick up higher in the unemployment rate that actually meant something for the broader economy. But instead, something out of left field, right, that kind of shocked markets and, and sent jitters through, uh, jitters through sentiment. So, Jack, I just want to um, hopefully you could help us crystallize what the government actually did Sunday night, because I spoke to so many clients in the last 24 hours that literally do not believe their own eyes and their own ears. Right. So the government said that all depositors will be protected every penny. They said the money is going to be used from the FDIC. And they said that it's not going to be any taxpayer money. Now, maybe it's just a complete distrust of the government and politicians in general. But did I get any of that fact pattern wrong? Or is that pretty much spot on? No, Mike, I mean, that that is spot on. And I think the one thing I would add to that is the way the FDIC is going to be funding these backstops is by taxing other financial institutions that are members of the FDIC. This is socialism. I mean, we are socializing the losses of these banks around major financial institutions across the United States. So when we think about, you know, does the taxpayer actually uh, shoulder the burden of these backstops? It depends how pedantic you want to get, right? Because at the end of the day, look, our taxes aren't going to go up because of this directly. And at the end of the day, we're not going to see spending diverted from something else to go fix up SVB or to go fix up Signature Bank. But taxpayers are depositors at banks as well. And if all of a sudden, you know, banks maybe cut the interest rate that they're going to lend to you or, or, or borrow from you on in order to help to pay for whatever may be happening, or you are a taxpayer that also happens to be the shareholder of one of these companies, and now their profits are going to take a modest dip because they have to kick into the pot that the FDIC has established, we're going to pay for this one way or another. I do think it is political to say that the taxpayer won't be paying for this. But I also would say that there is a clear distinction between what happened in the aftermath of 2008 and what is happening right now. Uh, and that is that at least uh, it directly, the taxpayer is not on the hook. And and I'm sorry, Dominic. And, no, go ahead, Mike. And the executives of these banks are gone. Gone. And, and if you're an equity happen. holder, if you're an right. equity holder, gone. Right. And if you're a bond holder, look, you're in line, but we'll see what's left uh, when 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 the uh, when the dust has has settled on this one. So uh, yeah, there aren't a whole lot of golden parachutes getting issued right now to the executives that help to take these companies in the wrong direction. And, and the FDIC is trying to sell off the different modules of this bank, right? I know their wealth division is particularly valuable. Um, they bought, I believe, Boston, uh, was it, uh, do you remember the name, Mike? Yeah, um, they bought the European division or something like HSBC. HSBC bought the, bought the UK version yeah. of SVD, yeah. 
Yeah, so so there they there are valuable pieces to this that hopefully uh, they'll use to reimburse themselves for any outlay, any dollars they're going to spend to reimburse the depositors. There, there is certainly value, I think, still be still to be found in Silicon Valley Bank. And frankly, I have seen some research, some analysis that says that if there hadn't been this sort of quick run on the institution, they would have been able to stomach these problems just fine. You know, one of the interesting analyses that I read yesterday is that a Silicon Valley bank deals with a very specific subset of client, which is going to be technology and tech adjacent sort of founders, VC firms, that kind of individual. Now, all of those individuals are very closely linked. They are a tight knit group. They live on the Internet and they act with herd mentality. Very, very different from a broader sort of retail deposit bank. I mean, if you were paying attention to Twitter on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you could literally watch the bank run happen unfolding in front of your very eyes. SVB got caught off guard by the nature of their client base. And in fact, one of the executives there interviewed said that he would never have expected that one of the biggest problems with their business model is that they targeted this specific type of individual that likes to move in waves, likes to, likes to move uh, with, with this, this herd mentality. So uh, I do think that some of these issues that, that have cropped up um, you know, uh, uh, were, were, were unfortunately timed. I do think SVB might have been able to, to get around this um, if, if, if the timing of, say, the withdrawals had, had, had been a little bit better. But, yeah, I mean, just chaos, right, I, I guess is the only thing you could really say at the end of all this. And I just want to follow up on what Dom said in our conversation on the open. What caused this problem was a year ago, Treasury securities were, were 2 3 4% lower. And the banks were buying these, which was a prudent thing at the time, right? They buy treasury securities, safest investment you could buy. And then when interest rates spiked up so rapidly, these banks got caught flat-footed with these lower interest rates. And this is an economics 101. Interest rates go up, bond values go down. So in your opinion, and you know, and, and Dom said if we had you know JP Morgan running the ship, this maybe never never have happened. But wasn't it incumbent upon these you know, people buying these bond portfolios to kind of hedge against this and lighten up on these bonds that they were getting clobbered on? Yeah, and I think that is an important distinction to draw between Silicon Valley Bank and basically any other major financial institution out there right now. I mean, to your point, Mike, right, a lot of banks, in fact, most banks own a lot of this paper, and yet you are not seeing the same sort of volatility uh, that you did see in, in, in SVB. And I think you can account for that for two different reasons. One of them, to, to your point, is that it seems like Silicon Valley Bank didn't do a whole lot to hedge their interest rate risk. And while you know, uh, clearly the Fed raised rates, I think, faster than anybody could have expected. We all knew rates were going up a year or two ago. We all knew that was going to happen. We all knew that 0% on the Fed funds rate was not sustainable forever. So to not have any sort of uh, hedge in place to protect against that seems, it, it feels a little bit irresponsible. But we also have to remember that the business model uh, of this bank looked very different from the business models of most traditional banks, right? The ways, the way that banks make money at the end of the day is borrowing from you, the depositor, at a low rate and then lending out that money at a higher rate, whether that means buying securities or issuing mortgages, credit cards, auto loans, that sort of thing. But the nature of Silicon Valley Bank, and Dom, you mentioned this earlier in some of your comments, is that because they dealt with these 
uh, more tech-focused individuals, there's a lot of money piling in, but those businesses, not individuals, businesses, I should say, are using that money to fund things like payrolls, to fund things like operations. So Silicon Valley Bank had to take excess risk where they felt like they had to take a little bit of excess risk uh, in order to sort of improve their, their, their profitability model because you can't make a whole lot of money with a lot of deposits, but not a big, big loan book. And so you take those two things, right, the lack of the hedge and then also the sort of business model intrinsic to the institution. And it helps to show why this company uh, really got caught off guard, whereas it seems like contagion risk has not really spread too much, especially to the bigger financial players in the country. And, and Jack, I, I just want to stress a point you made that every bank in the country is running a bond portfolio. Every insurance company in the country is running a bond portfolio. We won't even talk about pension funds and institutional money managers. Who did not see this one coming? Right. I, I joke about even I could have figured this one out, but I think we even we could have figured it out. Right, Mike? Oh, you, you, and you I want to go. I think we did. Well, look, <laughs> and, and, and in spite of the fact that interest rates went up very rapidly, it still was over a year. It's not like they went up 500 basis points in two weeks. Right. You still have time to maneuver. You know, Jack, my, I guess the other thing that I'm grateful for is I remember, like yesterday, the 2008 financial crisis. And I remember watching the vote in Congress that the first TARP proposal was voted down. I remember watching in real time the stock market going down like 3,000 points. As you could see, the vote wasn't going anywhere. And I think it was a blessing that they were able to, re to, to do something over the weekend without getting without needing bipartisan votes, not getting too many politicians involved. You know, they, they just made a decision. They were able to act on it. Because again, if I think they weren't able to act that quickly, we would be having a much different conversation. I, I completely agree. I mean, if you want to take sort of a glass half full attitude about anything that's happened over the last even two, three years, it's that we've learned a whole lot of lessons about how to manage crises effectively, whether we did it the right way or we did it the wrong way. We are learning lessons on how to deal with these things. And I think the theme that you've been seeing out of the federal government, uh, out of uh, even the Federal Reserve, has been a, a swiftness of action. This idea that whatever we're going to do, we're going to do it quickly. We're not going to sit around and wait and twiddle our thumbs and wait for whatever the next step may be. We're going to act, we're going to take action now. We're going to see what happens in the future. And for the most part, I think that that has been a, a, a prudent way of, of handling things. So, Jack, one of the maybe unintended consequences is we actually saw the 10-year yield uh, drop pretty dramatically, right? Uh, and even a short-term, uh, two-year um, interest rates falling back pretty dramatically. It was a mad rush for people to buy safety, and this just seems as safe as it gets. Maybe this helps other institutions. I think that, that that could be a way to interpret it. Sure, I mean, like you said, Dom, you know, the, the two year, uh, I think it had its biggest single move since Black Monday in 1987. I mean, these are really not necessarily record breaking moves, but they are they are moves that will make the history books certainly. Um, the most interesting thing I think that if, you, if you're looking at the yield curve right now uh, and looking at sort of expectations for interest rates moving forward is that the uh, expectation for the terminal Fed funds rate at the end of this year shot down about 100 basis points in a couple of minutes. I mean, that's incredible. We went from looking for 125 basis points to go this year to around 25 basis points to go this year. And in fact, at one point yesterday, 
the futures market was pricing in cuts by the end of this year. I mean, that is extraordinary. What an Over an insanely short period of time. A short period of time, a massive move, and a fundamental break from everything that we have been talking about up until this point. And so you can think, sure, you know, Dom, to, to your point, given what's gone on with rates, uh, I'm sure there are certain businesses that may benefit from lower costs of borrowing. There are certain uh, individuals that may benefit from their APRs being pegged down to a lower level. But I think ultimately, again, you want to have a glass half full view about this kind of thing. It is probably good news for particularly stock investors that are looking for that light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to uh, Fed policy and when exactly we're going to see terminal Fed funds achieved. So, Jack, we're bumping up against a break, and 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 when and when we come back from the break, we we want to talk about other things than than the last four days. But in your in your opinion, do you do you feel it sounds like you do that at the moment this thing has been kind of isolated and 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 under control at the moment? At the moment, I, I, I do. You know, it is still far too early to make a firm judgment call on this kind of thing. And it almost feels irresponsible to say the coast is clear because, you know, when you say that it won't be. So I'm not trying to jinx anything now. But in terms of what the government response to what happened uh, could have looked like, I think this is about as good as it could have been. And it should be very, very reassuring to those individuals and businesses that have deposits over that $250,000 insurance threshold at the FDIC. They don't need to pull their money out. They don't need to go somewhere else, even if it means a money market fund. They can stay where they are. And so bank runs, I think, uh, uh, are likely going to be prevented. So to your point, God forbid if it's a third bank, the, the, the government's basically said that this is what they're going to do for the time being if a third or fourth or fifth bank comes along with the same predicament. If it's the same predicament, yes. You know, if, if it's a bunch of bad loans gone south, like what you would have seen in 2008, it's a completely different story. But if you have, you know, $100 billion of high quality securities on your portfolio that you can't sell because par value has just gotten destroyed, you now have this lender of last resort that will step in and help to prop up your business. All right. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a few minutes with Jack Manley from J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When you're thinking about where to park your cash, for over 30 years in the business, I've been a fan of funds like the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's managed for cash and designed so the interest income you receive is free from federal taxes. And who doesn't love paying less taxes? Mike, generating interest that's free from federal taxes is appealing. But I've been in this business for a long time, and people love the potential for more income on their hard-earned cash. Sorry, Dom. But the beauty of the funds is paying less taxes on cash. No, my friend. It's the potential for more income. Mm -mm. Less taxes. More income. Less taxes. More income. Less for taxes. your cash, ask your advisor mm -mm. about the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Less taxes or find out more at dcmadvisors.com. Well, Dom, one thing I know we agree on, it's not what you earn. It's what you keep. Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-T-A-X, 
the tax. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities, the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to The Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman, back with uh, my partner, Dominic Tavella, and our guest this evening, Jack Manley, Vice President and Global Market Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. So, Jack, this morning we got the CPI reading, otherwise known as the Consumer Price Index, which is basically the benchmark of how the entire economy is doing, correct? That's and, right. As it relates to inflation. And the number came in as expected. And the markets had a pretty good day. Now, you could attribute that to a bounce back from the last several weeks and days. You could attribute it to, you know, a sigh of relief. Or do you attribute that to that this print today now gives the Fed a little cover to not raise interest rates as expected next week, which would potentially do more harm to other smaller banks? Yeah, Mike, I guess what, I, what I'd say to that is before the bank blow up over the weekend, today's CPI print would have been the most important thing for us to be looking at as investors, because to your point, it is sort of the barometer that we've been using to assess the overall strength of the economy going back 24 months at this point. CPI is the only thing that we've been really paying attention to, because ultimately, as you said, inflation is what's feeding through into Fed policy. And the sooner inflation comes down, the sooner the Fed can stop can stop tightening. But as I said, right, that was up until we started to see this 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 sort of uh, genesis of a banking crisis over over the weekend. And now I don't think the CPI print this morning is particularly important. Um, and when we think about what happened with inflation today, as you said, kind of more or less right in line with what we were expecting, 6.0% on that headline growth figure. That is down pretty significantly, four-tenths of a point relative to where we were in January, which in turn is down relative to December, and in fact is now the eighth consecutive print that we have seen of disinflation, right? June of last year still represents the high watermark. We also saw core, core uh, CPI, which is CPI removing uh, the more volatile sort of commodities uh, like food and energy move lower, this time to about 5.5%, again, more or less in, in line with, with expectations. I think given the issues that we are seeing with the financial system, given the concern uh, that investors and policymakers have right now about the unintended consequences of, of high rates, as, as we discussed earlier, 
you would have had to see just an absolute monster of a miss on the CPI print this morning fundamentally change the Fed's uh, trajectory next week. So, um, you know, does CPI matter? Of course it matters. But it is now, I think, a secondary concern relative to what happened over the weekend uh, and the overall stability of the financial system. So, Jack, I mentioned earlier that that the lower interest rate environment might help some institutions. But myself, Mike, we've gotten tons of phone calls today, very concerned clients. I don't know that they're completely off the ledge just yet, but I bet you they're going to slow down on their spending. I bet you they're going to hold on to their dollars a little bit tighter and be a little bit more careful about how they get those uh, dollars out of the economy, which that in itself might help inflation. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, that that. Like, like you said, Dom, that very could easily help inflation, right? Because the, the traditional side of uh, thinking about inflation, at least when it relates to demand-related inflation, is that it is too much money chasing too few goods, right? That's sort of the, the, the nature of inflation. And if you go from too much money to just the right amount of money chasing uh, you know, whatever the right amount of goods may be, you are going to see uh, uh, prices get reined in. And so that could be good from an inflation perspective, uh, which in turn could be good um, uh, from a Fed policy perspective. The other side of this, though, I would say, is that consumption represents about 68, 70 percent of all U.S. GDP. So if the consumer uh, you know, starts to tap on the brakes and thinks about slamming on the brakes right now because they are apprehensive or nervous about current conditions with what happened over the weekend, kind of amplifying those fears, a slowdown in consumption that is prolonged and is deep is typically going to result in a recession. Uh, and when we think about the sort of Goldilocks scenario here, it is this idea that inflation settles back down to something more comfortable while avoiding a recession. That's the soft landing that we're looking for. So if we do see inflation come lower to avoid that recession, I don't think it can come from a collapse in, in consumption. So I'm not necessarily rooting for that, even though it would be good for CPI. So, Jack, let's do a little economics 101. Because when I when I talk to clients, when Dom talks to clients, we always try to put these things into context. And we always start the conversation with, well, the reason we're going through this is because the economy is too strong. Right? And then I hear there's this dead silence on the phone. And these people are wondering, is my financial advisor a lunatic? Is he an idiot? But But the truth is, we're going through this because the economy has been stubborn and not cooling off. You know, Dominic said, you know, consumers are going to probably start to spend a little less, and I agree with him. But just try to, you know, shed a little light on that. Like, why are we even going through this? Why are we going through this? these machinations of raising interest rates and worrying about inflation? I mean, so you're, you're, you're right in the sense that the economy, I think, is held in a lot better than anybody would have expected, uh, given where rates are right now and how quickly they got there. And the best way to, I think, sort of evidence that is by looking at the labor market reports. Look at what's going on with payroll gains. Look at what's going on with the participation rate. Look at what's going on with the unemployment rate. You know, uh, the unemployment rate this past Friday moved up to 3.6%. Before that, in January, it was 3.4%. That was the lowest unemployment rate we've seen since 1969. Evidence, right, exactly to your point, Mike, that this economy was really holding in there. Now, why we think, uh, you know, why are we concerned about inflation? Why is that an issue? Well, inflation at a certain level, and it's hard to quantify what that level is, but at a certain level, inflation becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because let's pretend, for example, it's these around number 10%. And let's say that every single thing that you can buy there, whether it is a good or a service, an airline ticket or a dozen eggs, 
uh, is increasing by that same rate, right? The price of that is going to increase by 10%. Now, if you know that the price of eggs is going to be 10% more tomorrow, are you going to wait until tomorrow to buy them or are you going to buy them today? You're going to buy them today. So elevated inflation pulls forward demand. And what happens if you and Dom and me and everybody on the line is looking at the, those same numbers and we all realize, hey, eggs are going to be 10% more expensive tomorrow than they were today because today they're 10% more, more expensive than they were yesterday. Well, then we all go to the store and we all try to buy those eggs. And then you're back to this classic story of too much money chasing too few goods. And so inflation has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Those prices are going to rise because we all tried to beat out the rising prices. That's the way it works. So the Federal Reserve steps in and tries to raise interest rates to make the cost of borrowing increase. So it is harder for us to spend so that consumption falls down. And when consumption falls down and we're more careful about how we are sort of allocating our, uh, our, our, our capital, prices are allowed to at least rise more, more, more softly, uh, if not outright fall, right? And when we see prices rising softly, that's disinflation. When we see prices fall, uh, that's what we refer to as, as deflation. But inflation's been really tricky these last 24 months. Um, you know, we think about particularly what was happening 12 months ago. Inflation was mostly supply driven. We're talking about Russia having just invaded Ukraine, two very large producers and exporters of commodity products. Hard to get a hold of food, hard to get a hold of fuel. If we had had this conversation 12 months ago, we would have been talking about China which would have still been under a strict zero COVID tolerance policy, which is gumming up the works when it comes to industrial production, makes it hard to get a hold of any sort of finished goods. Vehicle prices are kind of bubbled up to the surface on that one. It was supply-related uh, inflation. And you know what the problem is with that? Interest rates don't fix that. The Fed can't fix that. Jay Powell cannot end the war in Ukraine. Jay Powell cannot change Xi Jinping's mind about COVID policy. These things are outside of the scope of monetary policy. And yet rates kept rising. But what's interesting is that if you look at CPI nowadays, it's not so much about food or fuel or vehicles or goods. It's about services, things like restaurants, things like hotels, leisure, hospitality. It is also about shelter costs. And that is demand related and that the Fed can influence. And so that's why we continue to see upward pressure on interest rates. And that's why, uh, frankly, we're in this mess, right? Because the Fed has been fighting against very sticky, unpleasant inflation, and it knows it needs to get it back down to a level that is, uh, that is more comfortable. Um, just to change the subject a little bit, uh, we started the year, and, and I won't name them out loud, but a major firm, Wall Street firm, talked about earnings for the S&P somewhere around $230, $235. Seems like we've been losing about a dollar a week in those projected earnings. Nowadays, $218, $220. Are we going to go through an earnings recession? It's possible. You know, when it comes to the outlook for earnings, uh, you have to have an outlook on any sort of potential slowdown or perhaps a recession. Because when I think about what's gone on with earnings over the last couple of years, 2021 was a blockbuster year for corporate profits because margins just blew up, right? The cost of doing business was a lot cheaper post-COVID uh, because business, you know, offices are shut down, meetings are happening over Zoom, and people just aren't, 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 aren't spending as much as, as they used to, and so margins are, are improved. You fast forward and you look at 2022, and margins went from expanding pretty significantly to actually contracting pretty significantly and being a net drag on earnings last year. The world is reopened. It costs more money to do business. And on top of that, rates are higher than they were a year back. 
Uh, wages are higher than they were a year back. Supply chain issues mean that input costs have risen to a point that's higher than where it was a year back. So that sort of set the stage right now for 2023, where margins have already compressed a lot from where they were in 2021. And I would argue that a lot of those forces that push down on margins are starting to abate, right? The Fed may keep raising rates. I hope not, but they may continue to raise rates. But look, we're not going to get another 5% added to the Fed funds rate. We're talking about 25 basis points, maybe. So there's a light at the end of the tunnel for that. Wage pressure is still rising, but at a slower level. Supply chain issues have sort of resolved themselves. The reopening story is largely behind us. All this means that what you got to pay attention to for earnings this year, I think, is top line growth. It's revenues. It's sales. And if you want a view on revenues, sales, you have to have a view on the overall health of the economy and the health of the consumer. Now, we've talked uh, when, we, when we're speaking to clients about what's going on uh, with the economy. I think it is always important to point out, uh, you know, Mike, to your point, that there is a lot of resiliency here, that we continue to add jobs, that people are uh, still paid. I think it's important to point out that there are no obvious imbalances in this economy. The housing market's not out of whack like it was uh, in, in 2008, as, as an example. And so if you do get a recession, I think it's going to be a, a pretty mild one. So my view on earnings this year, it's not great, sure, uh, but it is not for a massive contraction that some other shops on the street are looking for. Uh, I think the economy holds up reasonably well, uh, just given all this excess uh, 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 demand for labor that's out there and what that's done to our labor market. So, you know, to your comment that if we do have a recession, it'll be a mild one, you know, just remind our listeners, a recession is measured in time. So so you would think, you know, it would be just a couple of quarters and we, and we could just get in and out of any potential recession. Is that what the hope is? And so a recession is going to be measured in time, but it will also be measured in, in severity, you know, um, when, when we think about uh, what happened at the first half of last year, we got two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. That, historically speaking, has been kind of a bellwether for a recession, but it is not the technical definition of a recession. It's just a quick, easy, back-of-the-envelope way to calculate it. What we want to look for instead is there's an organization called the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research. Think of them as kind of the referees for the U.S. economy. They've been doing this for about 100 years at this point. They look for sustained, prolonged contractions across a number of different sectors within the economy. That could be real personal incomes. It could be retail sales. It could be industrial production. It could be it could be payroll employment. So you're not just looking for uh, the, the time of the drop, uh, but you are also looking for the severity of the drop. And uh, I think one good example of that is the COVID recession, right? I mean, we obviously had a recession in 2020, but if you think about the nature of that recession, the recession probably started in, uh, 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 call it April, and probably ended in early June. You know, if that had been shifted forward two months, that would have been a one quarter contraction, not right. a contraction spread over two quarters. You right. still would have called it a recession. So yes, Mike, you know, that is a roundabout way of answering your question. I think it's going to be a pretty shallow recession, not a massive collapse in economic activity, but also probably one that's on the shorter side. Jack, we're starting to run uh, a little bit towards the end of our show here, but one point that we brought up earlier 
Um, these higher rates, I'm getting a lot of calls from clients who have adjustable rate loans for, who for years almost ignored them because the interest rate was so low. It's like, why even bother to pay them back? And clearly, there's a lot of corporations out there that borrowed excruciatingly low rates. And now, all of a sudden, they need to either refinance that rate, those uh, bonds or they have adjustable rate loans that they also um, – your final thoughts on higher interest rates and their effect on the economy? So higher rates are going to be here for a little while longer, but I do think it is possible, especially given that the Fed may be changing course in light of what's gone on over the weekend, that we've hit a high watermark in terms of, of interest rates. I think it is also important to point out here that the Fed itself has told us that whatever the Fed funds rate is at the end of this year will not be the Fed funds rate forever. It has told us explicitly that we will be seeing rate cuts next year, that we will be seeing rate cuts in 2025, that the long-term terminal Fed funds rate is going to be a lot lower than where it is right now. So the question is, how are you able to kind of make it through this short-term pain? And I would say since we are closer to the end of this hiking cycle than we are to the beginning, the worst is largely behind us. We'll We'll touch wood on that one proverbially and say that, look, if you made it so far, you're probably going to be uh, OK. So I think the economy is able to, uh, to, to to digest the impact of these higher rates and will benefit as they drift lower. So, Jack, one last question for me. So do you also think that the um, the yield curve inversion is finally going to break where the two and the ten will come go back into its normal rotation? It's going to take an awful lot for that 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 curve to to sort of uninvert itself, honestly, just because the short short end of that curve is so so high. You know, you give it two or three years, I can see a yield curve that is shaped more appropriately. But when you're looking at a Fed funds rate of five percent, five and a quarter, I don't see the ten year getting there anytime soon. Um, I think it's going to take a lot to get there. So an inverted curve, I think we're going to be living with for at least another twelve months. But unlikely, we'll see the the one year or the nine month paying five percent. I mean, that dropped like a rock, as we said earlier in the show. Hey, let's see what happens next week. That's going to influence a lot of our view on what may happen with that shorter duration paper. It's At this point, honestly, anything's possible. I don't think we should think about the Fed as a rational actor. Uh, I think they've, they've acted sort of irrationally over the last 13, 14 months. So uh, no matter how reasonable your view may be, uh, you can't necessarily count on it. Understood. Jack, we are out of time and we appreciate you you putting some common sense on a pretty complicated topic. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us, Jack. We look forward to having you back. Uh, you did a great job of explaining this to us and, and our clients. Thank you. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, 
Join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at Labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with a quick close with Dominic. You know, Dom, as Jack was speaking, I kept thinking of the expression, if you break it, you buy it. Because we kept waiting, we kept knowing that eventually something was going to break, right? That the Fed was raising interest rates and there was going to be some damage done. And literally, they broke it and then they protected all the depositors. So they broke it and then they bought it. You know, they, 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 I know it's not that simple, but that's what I kept thinking. Yeah, Mike, uh, we all expected something to break. Right. Um, and we, we touched on a couple of those when we talked about the consumer now with the rising interest rates. We talked about companies with borrowing costs that would go higher. And obviously that would affect their margins and their profits. We didn't really expect the bank to not and I'm not here to point fingers, but maybe not do a great job of managing their, their portfolio. Um, that one caught the market by surprise. And as ugly as Friday was and the weekend was stressful, uh, I'm grateful that they resolved it pretty quick. Look, I mean, to your point, we knew rising interest rates were, this has been happening for a year. We've had many analysts on the show. We used to talk about amongst ourselves what sectors do well in a rising rate environment. And what's always the first or second category gets mentioned is financials. And we we thought um, that financials will actually behave well this year. Uh, fortuitously, we cut our exposures dramatically way before this happened for a, no, a multitude of reasons having nothing to do with banks themselves. But, but they should be performing well in this environment in that they also will be earning higher interest rates. And this clearly threw a whole monkey wrench into the sector. Yeah, and, and that's what the complicated part of all this was all about, right? You know, you hear the expression of run on the bank, you know, and, and you think of it's a wonderful life and, you know, Mr. Potter standing at the door. But this was literally a modern day run on the bank. It absolutely was, Mike. I think I shared a, a number earlier where they had some 40, almost $50 billion of withdrawals over a two-day period. It's unsustainable. Uh, maybe one of the large commercial banks uh, here in the States could have handled something that large, but not, not a regional bank, not a bank. And this was the 16th largest bank in the country, but it was unsustainable. And uh, frankly, the whole thing was unnecessary. But um, I think this is a way you can give them an attaboy to the, to the FDIC and the government uh, stepping in and, and doing the right thing. Yeah. And, and, and I'm glad I asked Jack if, if God forbid there's a third, fourth or fifth bank is, is, is the FDIC and the government going to take the same position? He said they would. Not that we want that to happen, obviously, but I think it's that perception where the government didn't say, "Oh, we're making it. We're making an exception today for these two institutions," because that still could have caused a run on a third or fourth or fifth bank. And as you can see today, 
a lot of those regional banks really bounced back nicely. Yeah, they had a really strong day. And uh, I imagine it would have taken some courage today to jump into that uh, shark-infested waters. But if you did, you did first thing in the morning, you could have uh, you could have had a really good day in just one day. Now, again, not the kind of risks that we would take in our client portfolios, but the sector overall, I don't think deserved the abuse it got. Um, and I think uh, obviously some volatility with the with the Fed making an interest rate decision shortly, but I still think it's a good sector longer term. So, Dom, the the, the Fed's meeting Monday and Tuesday, correct? I I think it's early next week. It might be Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm not sure, Mike. Whatever it is, it'll be that that the second day of the meeting at 2 p.m. is when we the world correct. stops. Yeah, and they, and they make their announcement. It'd be really interesting. Jack said maybe. 25, maybe nothing. Goldman Sachs went on the record saying maybe nothing. Be real yeah, look, uh, if they did that. I, I, and we always we always talk about headline risk and such. Uh, you know what? Well, how will the markets react? And you would think it'd be extraordinarily positive if they went nothing. But uh, there's part of me that says, "Wow, do, is the market going to interpret that as that the Fed's lost control? And maybe they should do 25 and, and pause, right?" Um, but we'll see. We'll see how the markets react. So, Dom, we are out of time. Unbelievably. Unbelievably. This was a lively show tonight. We had a lot to go over. Um, Terrific guest. Yeah, he was great. He was awesome. We want to thank JP Morgan Asset Management. These are the third guests we've gotten from, from them in the last five weeks. So we're very grateful. And I will see you down the road, my friend. Traveling as always, but hopefully on every Tuesday night with you, Mike. Have a good night, everybody. Good night, all. Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman will be back for our next program, airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a great week.